everybody. Welcome back to a brand new, exciting, spooky episode of Not The Bomb Podcast. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk about movies about... Look, that's the intro. Brad, I'm super excited about tonight. I, I don't know about you. And it's why, not the movie. Why? Because we're talking about an amazing sequel? Is that why you're, you're we excited? Are, we, are, we are doing sequels uh, that bombed, which was incredibly hard to track down um, for horror films. But uh, tonight was your pick. So what did you pick? I picked uh, 1997's American Werewolf in Paris. Yes. Paris. What what a doozy. But what I'm so excited I about. I that's Paris, Kentucky, by the way. No, is no, where no. this takes place. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's Paris, Germany. Oh. Um, <laughs> but we have uh, a special guest that has finally decided to come onto the show. They're super famous. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know where that laugh comes from. So uh, I, I'm just, I'm so excited to welcome Freddie from Night of the Living Podcast. Uh, how are you doing? I'm this so excited to be here. I love, I love the podcast. I think the concept is something that I, uh, my life has been a lot of being the not a bomb guy. Uh, being, well, I'm like, I, I think every, you know, I'm, I'm too soft. I'm real soft on, I love movies so much. But I end up in these same kinds of arguments with people all the time where I'm like, it, it, that movie's not as bad as you remember it being. That is the whole premise of this thing. Because I'm, I'm with you. I've been told I'm way too forgiving on films unless it just hits me the wrong way. There, there are some unless out there. Unless it's Halloween ends. Unless which, it's Halloween ends. Which, yeah, I still haven't watched that. Okay, we won't talk about that. Um, but yeah, so, so one of the things we do, anybody uh, who comes Did on the show. Did you introduce who he actually was or? Yeah, were you not? Li- See, this is the problem. Oh, sorry. You, <laughs> no, sorry, you don't listen. <laughs> I do the same thing, man. It's like I wait until I'm called upon. I was just waiting. I was just double checking your work, Troy. That's fine. Would you like me to reintroduce? Hey, everybody! I'm super excited to have this famous person on the podcast, Freddie from Night of the Living Podcast. Is that better, Brad? That's good. That's good. Okay, thank you. That one passed QA. Good, good. Uh, so, anybody who comes onto the show for the first time, and this is going to be one of many times because we're gonna we're gonna have you back, like I don't know, like forever. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. So. We ask some questions and you don't know what these questions are, but the whole idea of this is if before you share your opinion, you kind of want to do a little litmus test and see where that person's coming from. Like see what they like, see what they don't like, see what kind it's of person they It's the not a bomb Rorschach test. It is the not a bomb Rorschach test. So Brad and I have five questions for you. We're going to take turns asking him. There is no right or wrong answer. However, we do reserve the right to make fun of you for your answers if, sure. if we choose. Okay, cool. So I'm going to start. First one, super easy. It's a softball question. What is your favorite scary movie? My Jaws is the easy answer to that. Okay. But when I look at Jaws, it's genre defying, so it almost feels like a cop out. So if I'm if I'm not saying Jaws as my absolute favorite scary movie because it's too genre bending, okay. I would say Return of the Living Dead. Ooh, wow. Well, that's going to make a an interesting answer for another question. Um, and I know what your favorite horror series series is. Let me make sure I got this right. Yeah. It's uh, a nightmare on Elm Street, right? Yeah, it is. We're in fact, here's this is weird, but uh, timing wise. But a friend of mine who I do Horrorhound Radio with, his name is Jason Cretton, mm-hmm. and <laughs> we have talked over the years. We have talked about Friday the Thirteenth and a nightmare on Elm street and, and it, his favorite genre is Friday the 13th. Mine is a nightmare on Elm street. And 
the dummies we are, it didn't occur to us until this year where we're like, we should do a podcast just called Freddy versus Jason because that's our name. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> it's and right. Like, it's literally it's, right there. <laughs> yeah, it was right there. And I'm like, and we are having these conversations anyway. Like, why don't we go back and look at those movies? And I'll tell you, like, it is it is challenging. Like, I, I've seen the a Nightmare on Elm Street series. I've probably seen every movie 10 times at this point. Oh, really? I think so. And that's kind of sick, really, when you think about it. But like uh, the level of time commitment. But I had a close friend who we would, we would get together every year and do this thing called the Night Marathon, where we would get up at dawn and we'd get together in this little room. I lived with my parents back then. So that's how long ago this was. And uh, when we started it and we'd get up and we'd get donuts in the morning and watch as many of the movies as we could get through. Then we'd get pizza for like around lunchtime and have that for dinner and everything. But we would watch at that time. There were seven movies, I think, because I was in college. I think New Nightmare had recently come out. But, um, man, it's challenged going back and watching critically as movies, watching A Nightmare on Elm Street in tandem with all the Friday the 13th movies will challenge will challenge like which one is a better series in your mind if you're because it's it is they they, they're neck and neck now for me really they really are because those those friday the 13th movies much like the whole not a bomb you know concept are movies that are actually pretty good movies they are well it's funny you say that because cameron had only seen the first one and so we're spending this halloween season going through all of them so we're up to number four and That's exactly where I'm about to go. Number four. Yeah. And he's having a ball with them because every time we get ready to talk about it, I'm like, okay, now up to this point, they've done this with the franchise. So get ready for something a little bit different. And, uh, he's, he's having a blast, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You go back and revisit those. It's such a solid franchise, um, in terms yeah. of consistency, honestly, the consistency, the, the, the way it's filmed, there's legitimate cinematography the musical scores are full symphonies and uh they're real actors like these aren't you know it's not friends making a slasher movie this is proto slasher territory or the earliest years where it's somebody trying to make a movie yeah and the movie's the most important part of the whole equation and it really does show and you're like i i underappreciated these over the course of my life where i'm a horror fan but also i recognized slasher movies i kind of fell into that brainwashing of they're less than because they're not complex but there really is a lot going on in friday the 13th now those those first three episodes are over on the night living podcast feed or they're going to be there and then the rest of them are going to be on the patreon right yeah well we have two out now the third one i think it's going to be friday and then um yeah and it's going to be but we have them on our main feed and on our patreon so, uh, and we have, we've been having a blast. I composed a song, I'm a, you know, I'm writing music full time now. And like I wrote doing that was like trying to blend the nightmare on Elm street and mm-hmm. Friday the 13th vibes and come up with like a theme song for the show it was really fun. Um, I've just immersed myself in this stuff. I was even playing the Friday the 13th Xbox game last night. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. You are really into it <laughs> too much right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad, you got the second one. Okay. For the most important question, <clears throat> what is your favorite Halloween candy? Oh shit. Specifically how you know what I really miss? I don't even I don't think they make them anymore. Are these bones that came in the little plastic coffin? And I they, remember they those. Were, yeah, they're kind of like a sweet tart material. Yes. Oh, yes. 
And you could even, I think you could put a, build a skeleton out of them. Yeah, you could lay it down because they, they were like little puzzles and you could make yeah. them. Because they had bats and stuff in it too. Yeah, I loved those. I Like I said, I don't even know if that's like a thing anymore. Oh, I need to um, look for those. And I think that peanut butter kisses get a bad rap. Ooh, peanut butter kisses. Do you remember those? I do remember they were in, those. Yeah, the little black and orange yeah. wax wrappers. And it was like a... Uh, an indeterminate, indeterminate flavoring <laughs> of brown taffy with a dab of like just a little dab of like a rat turd of peanut butter in the middle. <laughs> That's right. And Brad, you you get the honor of stealing from your kids. Uh, my kids yeah. are old enough now that the only the only leftover candy we get is the stuff that we don't hand out. But so that means we buy the stuff uh, we like. <laughs> sorry, that's Elsa. Hey, Elsa. Right. <laughs> She's objecting to stealing candy from children. <laughs> oh yeah, Troy, come on. Uh, well, so this next question, it's too easy at this point, but I'm really curious why you, you would pick this film over the other. So your podcast is night of the living podcast. So it's, it's kind of a take on, um, night of the living dead, but you guys Mm -hmm. don't just concentrate on zombie films. You're, you're one of the oldest and best horror podcasts out there. So we have a question for you. Which film do you like more? We know the answer now, just based on the, the first one. Dawn of the Dead or Return of the Living Dead? Yeah, I uh, it, personally, obviously, Return of the Living Dead, just because of the the attitude of it and the pacing and how grimy it is and the humor. Dawn of the Dead, undeniably awesome, though. I mean, I was a huge Romero fan, and that's one of the reasons we did name the show Night of the Living Podcast. Mm-hmm. The other reason was our very first episode was a compare and contrast of the original Night of, uh, Night of the Living Dead and the Tony Todd, uh, the yeah, one that Tom um, Savini, one, Tom right? Savini directed. Yeah. And, uh, the originally we were like, we're going to do a ser- We're going to take horror seriously. And we're going to look at these <laughs> horrors coming back, man. Cause this was 2006 and it was a weird transitional time of what horror was kind of going to be going forward at that point. And we're like, is it going to be a bunch of remakes? And if so, like, are they better than the originals? How do we look at them with an open mind? And that was like the whole concept. And then uh, because the first one we did was Night of the Living Dead, we're like, we'll just call the podcast Night of the Living Podcast and um, go with that because it just was easy. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, not super romantic. but (laughs) So we we need to stop. You said 2006. So you've been podcasting for 16 odd years. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. It's really crazy because it's so different now. I mean, it's like, I just remember the early days were, um, I guess, like how any diffi- of this stuff. Like how difficult it was? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I thought about, you know, because it felt like I was a huge fan of the movie Pump Up the Volume. You, you remember oh, that? Yeah, With, Christian oh, yeah. Slater. Christian Slater. Yeah. The, in the concept of a pirate radio station. And that's kind of what, in the beginning, that was the mindset of podcasting. It was... It felt like um, so DIY. Like we had to figure out how to build an RSS feed, and I'm not a, I'm not a technologically savvy person. So I had to like reach out to friends and stuff, and just be like, "There's this thing I want to do. I want to do a radio show, but I wanted people to get it through iTunes." <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, there was just a handful of people doing doing it, and um, and you just had to network with those those hobby hobbyist really is what it is it reminded me almost of like the shortwave radio hobby 
that is now, I think, dead. But when we were kids, you remember you, there'd always be like a neighbor that had a shortwave radio. Like a ham radio? Yeah. Like a ham radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Very, it's very similar to the whole public access television. When you think about um, you had to have a community that had it and then you put a show on. But now with Roku channels, um, YouTube and all the other stuff, I mean, technology has taken something that used to be isolated to a very specific group that either had to have the the skill to do it or the know-how, right? Uh, yeah. or the equipment, everything else. And now it's just become such a, anybody can do it. And yeah. the content is overwhelming, but I got to tell you, some of the voices out there uh, are, are just exciting in my opinion. And, and for, for those who aren't familiar, night of living podcast, Brad and I, uh, have known, I don't, gosh, Freddie, it's, it feels like, uh, I know it's been at least 12 to 14 years, at least. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you've watched my kids grow up. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we've, uh, my introduction to horror hound was because of night of the living podcast. And it was specifically Indianapolis. I was going, I, I had heard you talk about it. The gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, talk about it. And when I saw Dario Gento was going to be an indie, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm going to go see what this is. Yeah. And, uh, then he canceled and I'm like, well, I'll still go. And I think the first table I stopped by because Kelly had sent me a message and said, hey, stop by because I, I wrote into your show every once in a while. And uh, from then on, it, it was just like instant best friends. I mean, yeah, <laughs> we, well, the community is so plug and play because film fans like horror, and you hear this every time you go to like a panel or you talk to an actor who goes to horror conventions mm -hmm. for the first time. They're always shocked at the depth of like uh passion for movies not just horror movies but like and they all say it every time that's the first convention thing where they're like i didn't expect these people to be so normal and to know so much about movies and i'm like yeah tell me about it like it was the same with, with us the horror hound has been fantastic like uh, i do horror hound radio with those guys yep. in, the, in the magazine um and i that was my introduction to horror conventions was through them and it's still the only one i go to um just for time reason, if I could go to more, I would, but like, I love that community is been the best part of doing podcasts. I mean, it's easy. It's never a question of when people say like, wh what keeps you doing? Why do you still enjoy doing it so much when obviously nobody makes a lot of money doing this except for like Joe Rogan or yeah. some massive celebrity. So like, you know, for 16 years, I'm like, it's these people, they become like family, it's the community. Yeah. And you understand each other. You have a shorthand where you go into the office, you might have one person that you can bring something up and they kind of understand what you're saying or they'll make an attempt. Yeah. <laughs> but then you have, you can go right into like a whorehound weekend. And I met a, a lady named Barbara who, um, this kind of socially awkward lady at the last whorehound who, uh, I think was going through maybe an exercise that probably like a, a therapist gave her to go just walk up to strangers and say, Hey, you know what my favorite movie is? <laughs> and initiate that conversation. Yeah. And then she would make it through every one of her favorite movies. It was Lawrence of Arabia. And like, you know, you know it was surprising movies uh, from like a, a young goth woman at a horror convention, you know, and then she'd move on to another group and start a conversation. And it was just, it's, it's so wonderful. It's a wonderful group of people. It, it is. Uh, I love the horror conventions more than the comic book conventions, because when you have two people, uh, at a horror convention, so it's it's a it's a great example of your Freddy versus Jason. Some somebody could sit down and go, "I like this franchise or film better than the other one," and the dialogue is interesting. 
it's it's never coming from a mean place. Uh, you you never feel like the other person's trying to put the you know put that person down for their opinion. But I've been yeah. in way too many comic book conventions when when the same type of subject matter comes up between you know movies or comics and it's just a different vibe where the other person really is trying to demonstrate why they're right about their opinion. Oh yeah. I hate that. I, I, I think that's true of all fandom though. You always have a group who, I mean, what, they, it, I guess it is, they but, call them gatekeeper, gatekeeper ish. Yes. Of people. But I don't see it as often at the horror conventions. Um, it's true. Which I, I think that's just a more passive open. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are, people are excited about listening just about horror films. Um, yeah. And yeah. So I, I it, it's just a different feel. That's always been my favorite thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on about that particular topic would be like just a great hour long conversation. <laughs> All right, Brad, you want to get to the next one? Yeah. Uh, God, this is a real question. Uh, do you believe in werewolves? Do I believe in them? <laughs> yes. Like, like they achieve their goals and dreams. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Do you support them? Uh, you can do it. <laughs> I wish the best for them. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm like I'm pretty skeptical. I try not. I, I really do try not to be. In fact, like I get like belligerently skeptical sometimes, and I'm <laughs> I'm trying to not be that person. My wife is more open to that sort of thing. Uh, which I think is pretty typical on gender lines. Like who is the skeptic in the relationship? It's usually the male, right? Something wrong, something in our DNA where we want it to be proven. We need facts. I don't know if that's, there's any truth to that, but like uh, I'm wearing right now, actually I'm wearing a t-shirt from the factor fiction convention, which is a cryptid convention, which is the irony of me talking about being so skeptical and wearing this t-shirt. But this was like a thing they did at one of the horror hounds. And it was about Bigfoot and cryptids and all that stuff. I, but, I remember that they had a whole hall and you could go through yeah. and they had panels and everything else, but you saw like all these Bigfoot hunters and stuff like that. It was, it was fantastic just to hear them. It was fun. It was funny. Like the things that they'll sell in the name of hunting Bigfoot and the, yeah, the, sticks. the, the they the sold shucks. sticks. Yeah. 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 Bigfoot hunting sticks yes. and everything like that. Like, and I, I'm thinking about, you know, werewolves in respect of that. And I'm like, I doubt it. I really doubt it. It's like, I'm one of those people that says like, if they were going to find something like that, we would, we'd have it by now. But that's like the arrogance of being like in the modern age where you always think that science is done. So it's possible, I guess. Yeah. Why not? I heard someone say one time, what if Bigfoot's just blurry? (laughs) Right. Yeah. The the mental gymnastics stuff. Because I'm also worried like, you see what happens when, I mean, like a lot of stuff we're dealing with politically in the country right now is like the result of people who will believe anything. So you also have to watch, you got to really watch what you're, you can have an open mind, but there is a point where things are coming in. If you're too open and then you're just being manipulated by somebody, big oh, werewolf. That is the danger. <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. Brian. And the big one, what is your favorite movie bomb that you would recommend to everybody? Oh man. My biggest movie bomb in horror would probably be a movie called End of the Line, which is hard to find for some reason. It's a great movie. It's a Canadian horror movie. It came out maybe in 2006 or seven. maybe. I can't remember for sure. Um, this French-Canadian horror director. And it's one of these really... It's a movie that has like an identity to it, all its own. It's like nothing I've seen. Uh, this nurse ends up on a train on the night that the world's ending basically on her way home from work. And I, I don't want to say more than that. 
about without spoiling it, but if you can find the movie end of the line is like, for me is the big, the biggest one that I think gets, uh, doesn't get any attention that it really does deserve a lot of attention. I've never heard of this. We need, we need okay. to seek this okay. out. It's a good one. Yes. Awesome. It's a good one. That's a great recommend. Well, tonight we're going to talk about werewolf movies. So before we get into 97's An American Werewolf in Paris, I, I kind of wanted to open it up real quick and, and just talk about the genre in and of itself and get your guys' opinion. So there are a lot of werewolf movies out there, and it's part of the one of the monsters of the classic universal monster staples, right? But I, I'm just curious, what do you guys think makes a good werewolf movie? So what are the elements that you look for when you're sitting down and you know you you go okay new werewolf movie came out um, getting ready to go watch it what, what do you kind of expect or do you do you have a checklist that says if it has x y and z i'm good right it, it's well, got to have these elements. yeah I, I think not only do you have to have the transformation that is a struggle for the for the character but also just the the opposing um kind of ethos that goes with being a real person and then turning at some point in time and seeing that transformation as well. So I definitely think you have to walk the thin line of like, how does this person act 30 days out of the year, out of the month? And how do they act one day out of the, out of the month? Um, but also getting that transformation and showing how painful it is for someone to literally turn into a pod animal. Um, I, I guess we'll get into it. Uh, like American werewolf in London, like that painful, uh, where he's in the living room and it's, you know, he's changing and like, he's on kind of feels like he's on fire and all this stuff. Um, that's kind of my big one is, you, is that transformation part. That, that's interesting, Brad. So do you, do you consider a werewolf movie part of the body horror subgenre because of that? I would think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I, 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 I guess I, I never really, yeah. Yeah. I guess I never really thought of like body horror, but yeah, when you see someone change into a wolf, it should be horrific because okay. a man and a wolf do not look too similar. Um, and so to get from a bipedal to a quad pedal is, should be painful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt, <true>. man. <laughs> Turning into a dog sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> about I, it. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, yeah, Freddie? That, what are your, uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. That's part, big part of it for me is you got to have that great moment in, in the movie. If you're talking just in the movies, that visual transformation scene has to be as gnarly as they can make it. Like that's why an American werewolf in London is still the gold standard for werewolf transformations. But for me, the, the flip side too is what the werewolf ends up doing. It, they have to be monstrous and vicious and rend and tear everything in sight. Like to me, a good werewolf is like, uh, a force of nature that is just an unstoppable, like incredible Hulk, like or Jekyll and Hyde kind of character that once they're the wolf, like there's no humanity there anymore. Right. And I like I like to be them. To, I want to be scared. My thing with horror movies is always comes down to I want atmosphere and I want to be scared. So the the you know with werewolf movies, I love the Wolfman. I love the original Wolfman, but the whole con the the makeup of that never scared me. Um, probably because I was I had seen an American Werewolf in London before I had ever. Yeah, seen I was the gonna Wolf say if you, if you see that one first. <laughs> yeah, so like the in, and still like uh, I don't know if you guys have watched Werewolf by Night yet on Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like the I like the look of him, you know, as the kind of 
classic universal monster kind of werewolf uh, man on two legs with dog face type of thing. It works in that context for me. But as a horror movie, I got to have my it's a giant wolf and it wants to eat you. That's the most important thing okay. to me. I'm very basic. Uh, I like those. Ans- so the transformation, I think, is important. I, I guess I'm more concerned about what is the look of the werewolf. So mm-hmm. I, I would I would also go out on a limb like I love the Paul Nashy films as cheesy as they are. I like the look of his werewolf. I love the classic Wolfman look. Werewolf by Night was just a joy to watch. Um, I, I think it's important not just the transfer transformation, but the wolf have a unique look to it. Uh, yeah, I like the fact that as many werewolf movies are out there, you know, from Silver Bullet to American Werewolf in London. To <laughs> it's my Howling. number one favorite, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yeah, and <laughs> Silver and Bullet's the best. It's it's up there, man. But I I love the fact that every werewolf has just a unique look and feel to it. And then the other thing that's super important for me is Brad's comment. So you guys have talked about transformation. He becomes a werewolf and he's got to tear things up, right? What makes the werewolf interesting is the other 30 days um, when he's not a werewolf. How does he deal with the fact that he just did what he did or she just did what he did? So to me, one of the biggest components of a werewolf movie is what is the after effect of all of the carnage and massacre? And to me, you need a really good actor to always pull that off because it'll fall into two camps. Like it's tragic and they just want to end their own life and they don't understand it or they've embraced it and they're using it in some fashion or they're just freaking evil. I mean, you've got so many different ways to deal with that trauma post werewolf. And yeah. and to me, just as just as interesting as the werewolf look has to be, you have to have an interesting take on what happens like the next day, uh, because a, a good werewolf movie has to ha- nail that element down as much as like the scares of the werewolf. Mm-hmm. Um, now you sure. s- you said Silver Bullet Freddy was your favorite. What what's your favorite, Brad? I I do have a soft spot for for Silver Bullet, but since Freddy took it, I like the ha- <laughs> I like the howling a lot. I like the, the howling howling's good. You know, um, when you're talking about the, the how the werewolf deals with this, I I, I love that about Silver Bullet because mm-hmm. you get both. Um, like you watch the Wolf Man, okay, the prototype, right? You have Larry Talbot is destroyed by this guilt of yeah. being a werewolf, and he's trying to just scramble to figure out how to break the curse, essentially. And you get to Silver Bullet, and what's great about that is. That same thing is happening with a character off screen for the first two acts. And you got you have this great front load of this coming of age story instead of these characters who live in the town. It's not about the werewolf. So for me, that's why it stands out. Why it's my favorite is because most werewolf movies are about the werewolf and they retread that whole thing about I'm a monster once a month. And how do I deal with that? And I'm, I'm like, okay, I've seen that enough, honestly. So what are you bringing to the table that's new? And for me, shifting that, that um, they're like, that dilemma's there. In fact, it's what's fueling the villain of the movie, that he is so guilt-ridden over all these murders he's committed, but he's also a priest. And he's doctrinated into the Catholic idea that it's worse to commit suicide than it is to, to yes. murder people. Wow. That's a, that's a crazy take. Yes. Well, it's, it, it's really awesome because it's, it's one of the, that's why it's such a great movie because that is just one thing going on in that movie. And it's, it could be a whole movie unto itself, right? If they made it now, somebody would be like, 
it's this tormented priest and you're going to have one act of him being horribly sad and a second act of him maybe finding penance when really he's out of control by the third act. And I would have been like, great drama, sure, whatever, but not the best movie. Like Silver Bullet, you put in action and adventure and Uncle Red and... And, and, like, and Gary Busey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gary Busey. Oh, so great. And the dynamic with the brother and sister and the parents. Like, to me, it's just a more well-rounded movie than most werewolf movies. Yeah, I, I, my favorite probably is still The Wolfman, only because it was the one that I associate with my father the most, because that was the, the movie that scared him. But I've, I've really come to appreciate that. The more that I watch it, I love that Larry Talbot character. Me too. I, I love the fact that at the the only way for him to kind of escape it, and to me, the Wolfman is the the take on the tragedy of that story because there there have been other takes on it, right? The the tragedy, and I think American Werewolf in London is probably my second, but both of those films do a really great job of you can only you know kind of be stopped by the one that loves you the most ends up kind of being responsible for your death. And mm-hmm. that take and that tragedy and how it spills over, I, I just love that aspect of it. I, I dare say the first Wolfman kind of borders on some kind of Shakespearean stuff in terms hey, you're of, right. it does. of how he is cursed and how he deals with it and how he's trying to escape from it. And I think it has a lot of interesting things to say. So I've I've always just enjoyed that. And I think an American Werewolf in London um, is, the, is the modern version of it. It just... But again, if I were to if I were to go and say in a werewolf movie, I need a great looking werewolf and I need that central character to to really just bring something interesting when they're not a werewolf. American you Werewolf know, in yeah. London for me and the Wolfman, they they check both those boxes and I, I can't think of any f- other films that do it as good as those two. The only two that protagonists in any werewolf movie I've ever really felt sorry for were Larry Talbert and mm-hmm. uh David Kessler. Yeah, those characters are those, and I think it's the actors. Really, they're it is just so damn likable, and they're so vulnerable, and they're soft guys in an era when, like, you weren't allowed to be a sensitive guy. But they're both these real sensitive guys, and you're like, it's in stark contrast to every other Universal leading man up to that point, and even after that, they just go right back to the tough guys or the snobs or whatever you know that they. But, their, but their Lon Chaney Jr. is even great in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as Larry Talbot. Oh he's, <laughs> he's still like, oh, my God, I'm going to change it. I mean, he still has that tragedy. He's so awesome. But, Spider Baby, by the way. If yeah. you, I don't know if you guys are fans of that. Oh, he's yeah, so yeah, good yeah. in that. But yeah. I mean, it's it, it works even as sort of the call it the straight man in, in an Abbott and Costello film is the wolf man part of it. And it's just fun to watch. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, let's let's talk about American Werewolf in Paris. One of the things that we do is we try and go back and look at what what was going on when this film was released. So Brad's gonna gonna take us back in a time machine and talk about 1997 <laughs> and see what was going on movie wise when uh, this thing was released upon the public. So Brad, let, let's talk about this. Yeah, so 16 years after American Werewolf in London comes out. Um, Christmas Day, 1997. So we've all opened wow. up our presents. Now let's go see a Wolfman movie. Um, yeah, that's December 25th, 1997. With a reported budget of $25 million, it grosses $26.6 million. Um, it's opening weekend. It makes $7.6 million, 
which is good enough for seventh place. Oh. And it gets beat out by films like, uh, get ready for this, Troy, Titanic, Tomorrow Never Dies, As Good As It Gets, Mouse Hunt, Jackie Brown, Scream 2. You know, I got to say that's pretty fair. Yeah. yeah I was, was going to say, say it deserves um, seventh. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so it barely makes back its production budget. Critically, American Werewolf in Paris sits at a 7% with the critics. Seven. That's way off, man. Seven. And uh, a 30% with the audience. Troy, our, our favorite Christian website has done it again. They have <laughs> given guide. us a review of American Werewolf in Paris. This is Movie Guide uh, on the scale of minus four to plus four. Plus four being the most holy and um, minus four being very Wolfman-like. So where do you think Wolfman sits on the scale, Troy? Let's see. I'm always getting these wrong. I'm going to say, given this one, it's probably a negative three. Okay. You want to take Freddy's, a guess, Freddie? You got to Well, you gotta so I, I'm, here's the thing. I'm trying to really understand this guy's scale. So is he saying if this movie is a negative four? Scale it, again? It's if it's negative, a negative four? Yeah, negative four to plus four. No zeros. Negative four it, is the worst. In, as in, in Christian's re- eyes. Right, yeah. So it's an, a, a crime against God is number yes. four, right? Okay. Yeah. And then a plus four is like Passion of the Christ for, for uh, this guy, sure, whoever yes. this person is. Yeah. Okay. This movie to me should, if I'm a reasonable person and I'm a Christian, this is my thing. I'd go right in the middle because I'd be like, it's not that offensive. Zero, maybe, on the well, scale. I, it's it got pagan worldviews, man. It, it is <laughs> yeah. a minus four, Troy. This a is minus four? we've done that is a minus four How is this a minus four I, have they I, watched a serbian film they i don't have it not it's a good I'll question i'll have to look i'll have to look <laughs> i uh, read that review if they have <laughs> so for content we're a little light here but it's a cult anti-christian worldview making light of devilish creatures two obscenities extensive and graphic violence including man stabs man werewolves maul and devour men and women man shoots werewolves Plus, hits ghosts and ghosts terrorized men and women, implied and depicted sex, including fornication in a graveyard, upper male and female nudity, alcohol, drugs, and pagan rituals. Minus four. Wow. I so see. they don't recommend it. They don't recommend it. To your, to your little, to your I think they're Christian on the fence, Freddie. I think they're they're hedging their bets a little bit. But I th- I think these that is like. Uh, when you make a scale, you got to have some nuance in it. Yeah. And there, it doesn't sound like there's well, any in this scale. Freddie, this is a Christian website. I know. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to be empathetic to the person who created the website. And I'm realizing that maybe they're like horror movies are evil. They are. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'm going to make an argument that December 1997 might have been one of the best film uh, months of all time. Oh, okay. Get ready. All right. Uh, December 5th, we have Goodwill Hunting. December 12th, we have Amistad, For Richer or Poorer, Home Alone 3, Scream 2, Deconstructing Harry. <laughs> the, December 17th, we have Tromeo and Juliet. Yay. Uh, uh, hey. <laughs> and then the big one, December 18th, Titanic, on its way to $2.2 billion. On December 19th, we have Tomorrow Never Dies. And Mouse Hunt, uh, on December 24th, we have As Good As It Gets, which makes 
three hundred and fourteen million dollars. That's crazy. And then on and then on Christmas, we have uh, obviously American Werewolf of Paris, uh, Jackie Brown, Mister Magoo, the Postman, <laughs> Wag the Dog. Oh, I love Wag the Dog. Yep. Yes. There you go, yeah, Troy. When when you say it's one of the greatest, uh, and then you're like Home Alone three, yep. one of the greatest, <laughs> Mr. Films. Magoo, directed by Stanley <laughs> Tong. <laughs> Finish the fight, Home Alone three. Uh, so uh, this thing, I'm surprised that it did make back its production for being released in December. Do you think if it had gotten released in a traditional spooky season, it would have done better? I wonder why they did that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, that I is don't weird. It, 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 Christmas releases in general, like, I always strike me as a little. I mean, like the people going to the. I know a lot of families will go to the movies on Christmas Day, you know. But to me, that was never like anything we did as a family. So it always struck me as weird that when people, if it's not a Christmas movie, and they release it on Christmas Day, it's always a little odd. Yeah, or a sequel. I mean, I know the first film is pretty beloved uh, for not just horror film fans, but the film community. But for a sequel at 16 years late, like Scream 2 makes sense to me, given how big Scream was. Yeah, I remember buying Scream on VHS, and the trailer for Scream 2 was on that cassette. Yeah, but you got a sequel that's oh, 16 yeah. years um, in, in the making or you know? You know, later. <laughs> why, why would you release that against those heavy hitters? I feel silly saying what I just said because it just occurred to me I did go see this movie in the theater with my mom and dad and my friend. It was I had just started college. And I don't know if we saw it. I doubt we saw it on Christmas Day. But we were we were maybe just a, a handful of the people that contributed to that number seven place. I saw it in the theater, too. I didn't see it opening weekend. Yeah. But I do remember liking the first one so much that I was kind of excited about a sequel. Um, yeah, I was thrilled actually. But and, yeah, but I yeah. I can tell you I was in the minority because again, I I still think American Werewolf in London for for my age group at that time, so college, you know, type period it was, oh, that's great VHS, but the average moviegoer, I think it was still kind of far removed from it. Well, yeah, well, uh, 97 I I I do think we were still in that point where like we were kind of recycling movies into the culture where generations were <laughs> I just feel like like that has has kind of ceased. I don't know if that's going to be a thing anymore where a movie made this year is going to be something someone shows their kids. I don't know. Maybe, but I think you're right. I, I, that's yeah. I, that's just a, feel, it's because you, you didn't have a lot of choices. So you're like, if I want a horror movie, I'm going to watch an American werewolves in London again, yeah. because I know it's a good one. It's like a guaranteed going to get me there kind of feeling, you know, so I'm going to the video store and that's what I'm picking up. And now it's like, I've seen it. And then you can scroll to the next thing. So I think that it had still had some clout in 97 where in the guys that I went to high school and college with who were horror fans in American world from London was the shit. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think I was one of the few that went to see this movie in the theater and didn't come away. I didn't feel disappointed maybe because I was so excited for it to come out to begin with. And you kind of had that confirmation bias going into it. Yeah. You're like, I gotta love it. <laughs> you're force feeding it <laughs> yeah yeah you're kind of but in hindsight watching it again for this i i mean like i still think it's a good movie okay well let's talk about the people who made the film so we're gonna start with the folks behind the camera and we'll start with director anthony waller so there's only one film i know of his and i love it uh i remember seeing it um and and renting it and then as soon i as soon as i had the ability to buy it on laserdisc i got it on laserdisc i still own the laserdisc of this but um, 
the reason why he got American Werewolf in Paris is because of this film, and it's 1995's Mute Witness. Have you guys seen this film? No, I've never seen it. I have because it's out Guinness, right? Uh, I d- is it Alec Guinness? I don't remember that. So I believe so. Yeah the the whole premise is a mute makeup artist is working on a slasher film in Moscow, and she ends up witnessing a murder and is trying to evade the murderer but convince the police of who it is. Morse code plays a big uh, role with that, doesn't it? A little bit. I don't I don't want to okay. spoil it. Okay. Um, I thought you were going to say no one would give her a chalkboard until the third act. <laughs> no. She's it's, just like, it's, it was Alec yeah, Guinness. Think of it as um, a, a, a riff on a giallo film, but I, I, think, yeah. I think it's really good. It moves at a fast pace, but check out mute witness in 95 his I, other films, i will yeah because he did mute witness which he also wrote then he did american werewolf in paris and after that i mean he did the guilty nine miles down the singularity is near nothing really after that but mute witness put him on the map and he was sort of like a, a hot director which landed him this gig and we'll talk about the production and development but but definitely put that on a two watch now, i'm gonna have to find it it's not on my apple app Oh, okay. Some, someone um, big, uh, big werewolf is suppressing its release. Okay, I'll I'll find it though. Don't worry. It's it's available. Um, I don't want you to wake up at night and be like, oh, I'll send you my laser disc if you want to borrow. Okay. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a way to play that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the movie is written by Tim Burns, Tom Stern, and Anthony Waller, based on characters created by John Landis. Now this is, this kind of gets interesting. Tim Burns has a lot of TV and film um, credits to his name. And in terms of films, he worked on a 1993 film called Freaked, which was um, co-directed by Tom Stern and Alex Winter from Bill and Ted. He was Bill. That movie's a blast. It is a lot of fun. So they wrote and then um, Tom Stern you know, was a co-director. But both of them had worked on shows like Cranky Acres, The Idiot Box, an MTV show. And I think Tim Burns also worked on stuff like Star Wars, The Clone Wars. So most of their writing pedigree is in television. But if you look at the time frame leading up to this, they, they were doing you know that kind of content. The cinematography is Egon Werden, who also worked on Mute Witness. Um, he has a lot of German television and film projects. What you'll see here is you'll, you'll see a big European influence behind the camera. Editor is Peter R. Adam. Again, worked on Mute Witness and lots of European film and television projects. Uh, probably nothing that a lot of us would have seen. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I thought I'd, I'd point this out. We'll, we'll save our comments for when we share our thoughts on the film. Visual effects created by Santa Barbara Studios, which was founded by John Grauer. Now, this studio we've talked about before because um, they did effects for Spawn and Ghosts of Mars, which we have episodes on those. They also worked on a couple of Star Trek television shows and um, K-19, The Widowmaker in, in 2002. The visual effects supervisor is John Grauer and Bruce Walters. The werewolf design and visual effects art director is Peter Lloyd. Now, this is Peter Lloyd's first credit as a visual effects person. So this is his very first movie he's worked on visual effects on. And he designed the werewolf. He worked on Star Trek Insurrection after this in 98. He's also worked on Mission to Mars, Dracula 2000. One of his more recent credits was Drag Me to Hell in 2009. So, as, as effects? As effects, yeah. yeah. So uh, this this is his first, you know, he's dipping his toes into visual effects onto this film, so keep that in mind. 
those are kind of the major players behind the scenes. So let's talk about the people in front of the camera. And we start with Tom Everett Scott as Andy McDermott. Uh, Freddie, what do you what do you think about Tom Everett Scott? Are you a fan or? Uh, I think he's adorable. He, he, Anton <laughs> Yelchin reminded me a whole lot oh. of Tom. Uh, I mean, whatever his three names are. And uh, the <laughs> I, I love. He should kill the president, deal? right? Is that the rule? He should. Like, yeah, yeah we, we actually had this conversation about like it felt like everybody had three names in the 90s. Yeah, you know, and it's like you, and it's less popular now to to do that as a performer. But like, uh, he, um, I love him. He's very approachable. He has that boy next door quality that we all love, and guys like Brad. And um, <laughs> oh, he does. <laughs> Brad is the Tom Everett Scott of the podcast world, right? <laughs> yeah, and um, the I the character though, I I that ugly American thing that's kind of happening with these guys is like kind of unappealing like okay. when he's like keep the change and the guy's like there's no change instead yeah. of being like let me get you a tip he's like keep it anyway here's your hero <laughs> ladies and gentlemen he doesn't tip you know like that bothered me a little in a stupid like unconscious you know it's not it's a movie i should get over it but i was like oh i was offended no i get it what, what about you brad where do you land on tom i don't know if i i mean i've seen him in stuff but i think he's pretty forgettable like he's just your kind of average white guy and that's coming oh, from, i'm sorry brad that's coming I from should... your average white guy so <laughs> that's true i mean if you, the, if you the average Google white guy, average white guy yeah. my face might come up so it's, it's okay See, i call that all american boy next door yeah but no you you are right i get that but i think he's kind of charming his performance is charming. Was, okay. was it uh, that thing you do in 96? That was sort of his breakout role, right? When everybody yeah. noticed oh, him. Oh, yes. Yes. Tom Hanks directed that. And then he did American Werewolf in Paris in 97. He followed that up with Dead Man on Campus in 98. So the late okay, 90s that thing going you into do 2000. Is awesome. Okay. I forgot yeah, about that. He, he that is a good one. Uh, that leads us to Julie Delpy as Seraphine. Um, Whew. I, I'm just I'm gonna be I'm gonna just put this out there. So mid '90s, there was a film, Killing Zoe, in '93. So oh yeah, this is when people were kind of doing the Tarantino ripoff uh, and doing independent films, etc. Killing Zoe, it's not a great film, um, but it, it's good. It's a it's a good little heist film. It it tries to have that Tarantino model to it. That's when I discovered Julie Delpy and just fell in love with her as an actress, and then. She was in the Three Musketeers that same year, but it really was solidified when she started doing the Richard Linklater's Sunrise trilogy. So she did before mm -hmm. Sunrise in 95. So I was probably more excited, not just that this film was a sequel to like one of my favorite horror films, but that Julie Delpy was gonna be in it because in the mid 90s, I, I thought she just walked on water in terms of absolutely gorgeous actress, but she's a really good actress like before sunrise yeah. that the whole sunrise trilogy she's fantastic she's great is that ethan hawk yeah yep. yes yeah i don't know where you guys land on her but i've i've always just had a soft spot for her and, and think she just classes any film up well also i mean she's a pretty decorated director now as well yep that's true so i got a lot of respect for her and i, I love the little piece of trivia that she did this for rent money <laughs> and I'm like, I like that. I mean, like, I like the honesty of it to be like, you know what? It, but also that it just because she was doing it for rent money, she didn't look down on it. No, she no, still brought yeah. that same level of performance that she was bringing to everything else. That's why I show up every week here. So 
Yeah, there the you go. Money. <laughs> I'm not phoning money. it in at all. Okay. <laughs> you make enough to pay rent? You got to talk to me after the show. <laughs> I got to figure this thing out. Yeah. Uh, spoiler, he doesn't. <laughs> he's, he's, he's lying. Um, this is all fraud. It's a huge it's a shell company. No. I'll, I'll run through some other cat. I mean, it's it's man, it drops off in significance after those two. You got Vince Vileff as Brad. Uh, I just know him from Rat Race in 2001. That's the only film. Oh, God, I love Rat Race. Yeah, that's an amazing film. And as soon as I see this guy, I'm like, oh, Rat Race. I remember him from Rat Race. Uh, yeah. Phil Buckman as Chris, the other American, did lots of television. Um, now, this one, I, we got to stop here. We've got Julie Bowen as Amy Finch. She's a Baltimore, Maryland native. Okay. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Most people will know her, though, as Claire from Modern Family. Uh, and about this time she was doing happy Gilmore multiplicity. So I, I think she's kind of hit it big, um, since her days, uh, with, <laughs> you know, we don't have to worry about her. She has done just fine, fine yep. on that modern family money. Yep. I love her. And like, this just was a great reminder that she's always had that comedic gift. Like it's not something that like she was a pretty face who they threw in to a movie as a sex object or something like she's a funny Actor. She is the bright spot. I mean, when she shows up, she does uh, bring some much needed good humor, um, especially yeah. when she's trying to whistle and stuff like, you know, again, I, she's great. Uh, the bad guy is Pierre Casso as Claude. He's been in lots of French movies um, and and television shows, but none of which I've, I've seen. I don't know if you guys are familiar. I love with a, a werewolf named Claude is hilarious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to write that screenplay. It'd be yeah. a very artsy kind of. Werewolf movie. <laughs> uh, let's talk about production and development real quick. So I'm going to run through. This is kind of interesting. So Landis was approached by Polygram Pictures in 1991 to develop a sequel to the first film. Okay. So keep keep that in mind. This is about six years before this one was released. Landis's draft focused on Debbie Klein, a character mentioned but never seen or heard in the original film. Do you remember Debbie Klein? No. So when they're walking the moors and they're and um, his buddy uh, is talking oh, about she, Debbie Klein, he wants the fucker. Yes, that's, that's the yeah. one, and she's the okay. one that shows up at the funeral and ends up in the. She's arms the, of the Ben Tramer of the American yes. Werewolf universe. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, but it's about Debbie Klein getting a job in London and her subsequent investigation into the deaths of David and Jack. Several characters from the original film, including Alex Price, Doctor Hirsch, and Sergeant McManus, returned. But the studio turned down the script. They didn't like it at all. And Landis had written this? Landis wrote it. So Polygram Pictures still wanted to do a sequel, but Landis said, I'm not writing another one if you don't like this, and said, just make it without him. So in 93, writer-director John Lafia had written and submitted his own draft to the studio. Studio didn't like that one either. And after Lafia left the project, now we get to- Lafia wrote uh, Child's Play and Child's Play 2, I believe. Yes, that's right. Correct. Um, now Tom Stern and Tim Burns come in who had previously worked on the short-lived MTV series, the idiot box and the 1993 comedy freaked, which we just talked about. They were hired to write a new script with Stern set as a director and the budget was going to be pretty small as part of the pre-production process. Stern had makeup effects artist, Steve Johnson and Tony Gardner work on preliminary designs for the monster and Phil Tibbet, who had worked on Jurassic park was going to use computer graphics to bring the beast to life for full body shots while the close-ups would be handled by the makeup effects crew using animatronic heads. Once they turned in their script to the studio, the studio informed Stern that while they liked the script, 
he wasn't going to be directing the film anymore. Stern said in an interview, quote, they were planning to do it on a medium to low budget around 10 to 12 million. And they felt comfortable <laughs> with me directing it at that level. Then when I handed it in, they liked it so much. They wanted to do it on a higher budget and they needed a big name director. They could use the foreign pre-sales since Polygram, which owns propaganda is a foreign company, you know, like Alan Waller, Anthony Waller. Well, no, he, he, he wasn't the first. So after that, they go to Marco Brambilla, who's filmed Demolition Man. So you remember Stallone was a <laughs> Yeah. So that director, because that was a big ma major international hit, he was brought on to take over the directing of you know that script. So here's what happens. Project falls into limbo for two years. And during that time, and here's a signal that you got a bomb on your hands, right? So... 12 screenwriters, including Larry Brothers, Neil Purvis, and Robert Wade, did rewrites on Stern and Burns' script. They kept rewriting this thing over and over and over again. During the hiatus, Brambilla left and was replaced by Anthony Waller, who had gained a cult following for his low-budget thriller, Mute Witness. Upon joining the project, Waller rewrote the script. After the arbitration process, the final screenplay credit went to Stern's, Burns, and Waller. Okay. Yeah, he sued over that, right? I, he did because they they weren't going to have him on there. So, um, film gets released. Here's here's and Brad kind of talked about some of the reviews and how you know it was accepted. And our Christian website doesn't like it at all. A couple other trivia facts about it: the film was nominated for worst sequel at the 1997 Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. But <laughs> Stinkers, yeah, it lost. To speed two cruise control. Oh, cruise control. Which oh, hey, Spider Man. I, I champion that. Film. <laughs> I love speed two. Uh, John Landis. You, you don't love speed two. I do. No one loves speed. I do. Um, John Landis, the director of the original film, uh, watched the film and he said, "Quote: I was really disappointed when I saw that film. I thought it was lousy. He was not a fan." So there's your history and. Was he talking about this movie or his son, Max? Hey, yo. oh, oh, ouch. The, uh, <laughs> um, I think his sentiment was like the hardcore fan sentiment, too. Yeah, I, I you think know? that's true. I think a lot of hardcore fans, um, they just they don't embrace this one, even though this film is really trying to replicate what American Werewolf in London did right with scares and humor. Yeah, but you know what? It, I think where it. I think this movie works as a movie, its own movie. As, a, I as think its own the, werewolf movie? Its own werewolf movie. Like, if I look at it as that, I really like the movie, and that's what I see it as. I don't even think about an American werewolf in London when I watch this movie, other than the obvious stuff of the ghoul characters, the ghosts and the, the rays, whatever you want to call them, the, the victims of the werewolves. You know, it feels like it's in that universe to me, but it doesn't feel like it's – it feels like a completely different vision – Okay. Well, let's get, you know. let's take a quick break. Um, we're going to play a couple of fun commercials. And when we come back, we're going to dive into it because I'm really curious where everybody lands on this one, because I don't think this one's so cut and dry. Um, but let's save it. We're going to, we're going to get into it in a few seconds. So we'll be right back. It's a big date. They love their popcorn. Look what they ate. This kind of action is the main attraction. Oh boy, ain't love grand. He's buying lots of goodies, ice cream, Pepsi, and peanuts too. Living on love's not easy. You need your strength to woo. Now he returns. What's this year? 
urge. Refreshing Pepsi, a kiss he earns. Romance and pleasure, and for good measure, thirst-quenching Pepsi. For those who think young. There was mighty Joe Young, the creature from the Black Lagoon, King Kong, and now there is Wanji. Wanji, born 50 million years ago and bursting from the bowels of the earth today to terrorize the West. Wanji, the most mammoth monster of them all, terrifying survivor of a lost era, rampaging through a forbidden land, a land they call the Valley of Wanji. Call it amazing, fantastic, unbelievable, and call it the greatest monster movie ever. The Valley of Guanji, the strangest Western roundup ever, starring James Franciscus, Gila Golan, and Richard Carlson from Warner Brothers Seven Arts in exciting Dynamation and Technicolor. The Valley of Guanji is rated G, spectacular entertainment for the whole family. Once this picture sinks its fangs into you, you will never be the same. Touch your skin. It's scaled. Look for your legs. They're gone. Feel your body. It's cold. Don't say it. Hiss it. Plus another spine-chilling hit. The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Okay, we are back. Freddie, you started to talk about this film and give us a little insight into what you thought about. It. So I'm going to kick it over to you. You, you had a chance sure. to revisit this thing. We call him overzealous Freddie. I am overzealous. <laughs> I'm just like, are you going to get to this in your outline? <laughs> well, yeah. Just what, what did you think about revisiting this one? Uh, I'm I, I'm happy that you reached out to me to begin with to, to, to talk about any movie, but this movie was one of those I've never would have really gone back and sought out on my own. So it was extra kind of nice to be like, I have to watch an American werewolf in Paris. I got to make a couple hours of my day yeah. to watch this movie that I'd forgotten about more or less. I remembered liking it. And then, uh, I, I do, I totally do get the criticisms of people who are big fans of an American werewolf in London versus this, because the tone, as much as they attempted to match that tone, an American werewolf in, werewolf in London, that's a tongue, tongue twister. Yeah, it is. Uh, is so English. Its identity is so wrapped up in England. And there's no way to replicate that in Paris. So, but where this movie shines is watching it now is this movie has a Parisian identity, its own, its own thing that feels completely its own thing. And if it's in the universe, I look at it like when you have another artist draw somebody's comic book, like the first time you picked up a Todd McFarlane Spider-Man and you're like, oh, this is Spider-Man. At least that was my reaction. I was, you know, because I was that age. Yeah. You know, I was used to the Spider-Mans from before and I, people were raving about this new Spider-Man, Todd McFarlane. I'm like, these guys look weird to me. I don't feel the same inside. And this movie, the first time I saw it, I didn't feel the same way inside. I couldn't explain why. But now as an adult. Um, and if I don't, you know, Paul Davis, who, uh, wrote for Whorehound magazine and yeah. directed Beware of the Moon. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Beware of the Moon. That movie 
and part of it might be all of him talking to him and having all that stuff from his documentary seep in my head too, where it is a London thing. They own it. They're like, it's an English movie. It's the English identity. That's an American werewolf in London. It has nothing to do with the American. It has nothing to do with a werewolf. It's an English movie. It's about England. It's about English attitudes and customs and that awkward feeling of being out of place or not wearing the right kind of, you know, that kind of uptight at the time uh, idea of England, but how they kind of owned it. Yeah, it's, I, I, I agree with that, but knowing Landis too, I think he really tries to ground it as much into the universal monster tropes as possible. Oh yeah, that's definitely all there. So I, I agree with you because I, I if you if you ever get the Arrow 4K or Blu-ray, there's some great essays in there, and I think there's an essay about American Werewolf in London and talking about the Polish experience in Europe, um, if I remember oh, correctly. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on to that film, but I, I totally agree with you. I've always felt that the first film it's one of the perfect blends of horror and comedy because it both works so well, but I think the comedy works because of its um, British attitude or sort of that nuance to it. But I also think what it really does is it really tries to create the Larry Talbot um, tragedy, but just for an, at that time, an eighties or modern generation where Landis is just saying, look, the werewolf film is is a tragedy, and we're gonna we are gonna introduce some things uh, like the ghouls, like you get to see your victims, which I think is just freaking brilliant. When when you take a step back and you go, well, how are you going to up the ante from what the original Wolfman did in terms of increasing, I don't know, the guilt factor of turning you into to a literally werewolf? be guilted by your victim? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's crazy, and to and to and it provides some pretty interesting comedic moments, and I would say that. Those dial that dialogue that they have are some of the creepiest scenes. Like when he, when he's just sitting in Julie's apartment and it's low shadow, you see the decomp decomposing friend just sitting across from him, telling him, "Oh, you got to kill yourself, right? Because <laughs> you're going to murder everybody." That's fantastic. But I, I agree 100. I think the original one has a British or English feel to it, but I also yeah. think it's Landis saying, "I'm sticking to the the template that is the Wolfman." He does that really well. And Brad, just tell me to shut up if I'm talking too much. I feel no, like go ahead. No. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, I feel like there's the other flip side in London that that fish out of water thing they do with David. Uh, I mean, um, uh, David Kessler. Yeah. I was about to say his name is David in real life too. And that really confused me for a second. <laughs> I don't know why, but, um, his, uh, that putting in the thing, the neuroses, like it's the Jewish comedian, in John Landis, the neuroses thing and all the dead people maybe represent like if you watch any comedy of anybody really from that part of the country, if you're looking at like the Eastern seaboard, there's like a cultural thing about your friends and family not approving of something you're doing mm -hmm. and you having to have those confrontations with them uh, in your own imagination. Cause it's a lot of times it's, it's the neurotic, right? It's yeah. the neurotic source. Most of the comedy comes from is, and then he brings, you know, uh, Dominic Dunn's, character in the bathroom i think uh scene where he's talking to him but you could write it off as as david's neuroses like and you could take the, him not be a dead guy you could switch out the scenario it could be an episode of seinfeld yeah with george and jerry you know what i mean like the way the the way the conversation is 
kind of uh, bandied back and forth between the two of them. It's not deliberately like anything but real. Like they're not trying to go spooky, you know, with what he's saying. It's more like just very matter of fact stuff and it makes it so much funnier. And uh, I think you don't get that out of this bungee jumping character because people who are super neurotic don't typically get into extreme sports. True. True. So that's a big difference there too, with even the character himself. You know, David Naughton's character was a nice boy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It, it does. Where, uh, well, yeah. I, have a, I have a question for you. So I we've talked about this the last couple of episodes about horror films or just movies in general. Today they're they're made for a specific demographic of like that eighteen to twenty nine year old and and even if you go deeper into the details it's it's the city versus or or it's the urban versus suburban and rural. And so when you look at you, I think have two characters between American World for London, American in Paris, they're about the same age, right? So mm-hmm. college kids, ones, well, they're both kind of just traveling Europe, right? And, and it's interesting. You have two college kids in the original, just backpacking and they're talking about sex. They're talking about adventures, et cetera. And then in late nineties, you have, oh, it's extreme sports, which I think was, you know, kind of a bigger deal for, for that target demographic audience. Um, oh yeah, it was smart. Well, it seems smart. If it were real smart, smart, it wouldn't have been number seven. But I mean, do you think, do you, because those are two different types of characters and they're coming from two different types of generations. Do you think that works against it in this film? Well, I don't, I, I don't judge it on that. I mean, I feel like, again, like to me, an American world from Paris feels like it could be its own movie. It's not missing okay. anything to me. Like that 7% on Rotten Tomatoes is so unfair because this movie is very well structured. It's well filmed. The performances are good. There are jokes that land. If it didn't have an American werewolf in Paris as a title, it wouldn't be a 7%. Okay. So so it harms it in the view of people who can't separate it from the original movie, I think. So, so but, okay. Yeah. So you think that on its own, totally different. Because it really doesn't reference yeah. any characters from the first one. It references the concepts, more or less. But yeah. you, you think it, if it was a standalone, just werewolf film, it, it would have been received much better. Yeah, because people, well, people would have said this ripped off an American werewolf in London in a lot of respects. But they, I don't even know that because that I don't think that that wraith or vengeful spirit thing ever caught on in any other werewolf movies that I can think of off the top of my head. So it seems a very specific to this universe mm-hmm. that he's created that that happens. So that inevitably would have drawn comparisons. Um, but, and there are other similarities in the, the story itself and falling in love with this, who you think is a nurse and all that. But those were kind of put in there as I think fan service more than anything else. And they're not necessary to s- tell the story they're telling. So you could take those out and swap them out for other ways of them meeting and it would still work. So like on, on a, like a structural level, it's, it's, it's a fine movie. It's not a bad movie. It's just an okay movie. Okay. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> um, what about you, Brad? Uh, you and I got so excited about doing this. We both splurged like 50 bucks on the 4k it's, it's, a German, German. <laughs> it's a German 4K disc we had imported uh, because I think you can buy it on DVD or you could watch it on Amazon free with ads. And I, I told Brad, I'm like, I think Germany sells a 4K disc. Um, it's kind of pricey, but 
I'm buying it because uh, it had it has the alternate ending on there. It has a, a bunch of special features. But um, you you've seen this before. Yeah, yeah, I remember renting this from the good old Blockbuster. But Freddie, thank you for coming on this show. Uh, I'm going to wholeheartedly disagree with you, though. <laughs> oh, uh, I think, I think, uh, I mean, and this is coming from a kid who grew up on the MTV generation, right? Like MTV was important in my life. I don't want MTV in my horror movies, and that's kind of what we get here. Uh, the one guy is literally Dan Cortez, um, which <laughs> is is kind of wow. funny. <laughs> oh my! He, God. he needed the headband, but yeah. you're right. Yeah, uh, that's true. Um, so. At first, I was like, are they kind of going for like this reverse Cinderella? And then, of course, that my mind is like, oh, well, what kind of sex move is the re- reverse Cinderella? But anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, he gets her shoe after the uh, really awesome opening. And I say awesome in air quotes, uh, bungee cord off of uh, <laughs> which if you know anything about geometry, the way that the uh, Eiffel Tower is structured, it goes up to a point and like if you were to bungee jump off of that you're killing yourself um but that's I, a really good observation i didn't even think about that i, I think my my whole question is 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 this movie all a dream what <laughs> that would make because sense he, why he, he could hits, do that yeah because he hits his head on the eiffel tower and then he wakes up but it kind of then ends on a weird like i don't know because of the way the lighting is in this movie because i Guys, the lighting in this movie might be the worst lighting I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it is so bright all the time when they're outside. It's like, guys, we this is not how you make a movie. But I was thinking, like, oh, is that just because it's like that dreamlike essence to it? Because he's still asleep. But I don't think I think that's giving this movie way too much credit. Um, <laughs> it's just so what we learn about werewolves, what we know just because we watch movies is like silver bullets are a thing. Um, and there's never really talk about them being a werewolf in this movie. There's a little bit of exposition at the end where they talk about the moon cycles. And if I take this depressant that I can, um, stave off being a werewolf, all this stuff. And I think a lot of times when we, when we talk about movies, we, we, we look down upon the expository parts of movies, um, but sometimes you need those so you can learn about what is going on in the world. And sometimes expository stuff helps. And here we don't get anything really to kind of explain what's going on. Why are there werewolf Nazis? I, I don't understand. <laughs> they clearly want to be the master race, but also be werewolves. Um it, his his uh his evil speech is a little like I don't understand it. I, I will yeah, I will agree with that. Like it's a little. He goes little on fascist, and on yeah. about the better species. Da da da. Yeah. yeah. But it feels like he's targeting Americans specifically. He is targeting he is, Americans. Yeah. Targeting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. And then I think it's unfair because I watched American Werewolf in London and then immediately watched this and the stark contrast in the quality of filmmaking is it just jumps right off the screen. We've talked about it. The, the David transformation scene, you'll show that to everybody. When you talk about werewolves, you just said, Hey, you have to see this. Look at this in this movie. It's, um, I, I guess 
when we think about that transformation scene in the, in London, we think of it because it's practical. The hand stretches out, the back feet stretch out. Everything is, you can feel it here. It's like a goddamn cartoon shows up all of a sudden. Yeah. And <laughs> it's all the effects it's are really bad. And, and then they can start showing the budget, right? So instead of showing them changing, they'll go jump into a fountain. And when they come out there, um, a werewolf, um, the werewolf design is really bad. They look more like their snout, like a, a werewolf has a long snout. These have like it a looks really like, short. It looks like the dog from the Tex Avery cartoons. That's always yeah. whistling at. Um, yeah. Or it looks okay. like a bear. Yeah. Bear. Kinda, like, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Like they're, they're just not well designed. And like the look of a film plays a huge part in an enjoyment of it because like it's a visual medium. And when I look at it again, the lighting is terrible. The characters, the three main guys are all just huge douchebags. Like <laughs> they're just the worst. Um, and their meat cute is like the, like there's no way she would be into that guy. Like, have you seen her? Have you seen him? Like, I, I don't, I'm never buying their relationship. I just had a really hard time with this one. Um, the, the whole bungee cord, like again, the extreme sports aspect and the MTV affication of the series really stands out in this one. It just doesn't fit. Cause we were kind of saying like, you need those guys to be sort of nerdy. I, I think that that makes them a little bit, I don't know, because when someone comes out of and they're like a werewolf, it's like that aggression. When you see them in real life and they're not aggressive and they're kind of puny, it kind of makes them when they turn show like, oh, their animalistic side. These yeah, guys you just, need a mild mannered. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean for contrast. It's kind of like the yeah. Bruce Banner thing. Like he's a scientist, but then when he goes into the Hulk, like he's the Hulk. That kind of is the 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 motif you have to go with with a werewolf. Um, I, so I'll, I'll disagree on that point. Like I, yes, it's easy to show contrast when you do it that way. But again, I think it's kind of interesting when they do something different. So if you have a bunch I mean, of, if it would have worked, I, I might've, no, I, 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 I think the script and directing play into this. But if you think about the concept of taking like a sex crazed, extreme sport teenager or college kid and then they become a werewolf. That could be interesting, and it, and it could go into different places. Like Teen Wolf. He it, could get really yeah. good at basketball. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, Was he really good at basketball, though? Was he? We don't We don't know. We, there's no way of knowing. He can't get the wolf out. Yeah. But it, it could I mean, it, it really have been interesting. Great. Yeah, it could have been interesting. I, I just didn't, I don't think they do anything with it. He did win me over, though. Like, like I did not. Like, I, was, I made a point to be like, oh, as soon as he did not tipping thing. Really was like the first thing where I'm like, okay, you don't want me to like this guy, and and I that's what you're saying, Brad. Really, I agree with you up to the point after he saves her, they do a good job at that point of just making him very likable. I think, but, but he even it, leaves yeah. like Brad, like the guy who's being crucified. He kind of leaves him for to like kind of deal as with his own shit. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Don't you, you remember, feel like, like he's his buddy's the real hero, the one who was in the dungeon. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dan you know, Cortez. We, yeah, Dan, Dan Cortez. Cortez. Remember when David gets when um, ah, what's the other guy's name? Jack. It's not Jack. When he gets attacked, David runs away, 
and immediately stops and says, oh, wait, Jack's my friend. I have to go help him and then turns around. I'm not getting that from Andy here. I, I, I don't think that he would have done that. And he does, I, he does I stuff know. like I, that for for Julie for Delby's gr- character for the girl. Yeah, yeah. yeah but they're you know, your friend. He broke. He broke the rose before hose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh There's yeah, he's definitely hose before hose. <laughs> I I guess long story short, I, I just the way this movie is made holds it back so much because I can't get over the look of it, the look of the werewolves. They're sort of primal vision that they have where they can smell perfume which i know like dogs and stuff and even say wolverine does that in 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 the x-men but like to see it in this it's a little weird i think my only highlight is um old girl from modern family i think that's the only sort of piece where i would be like oh come on julie Julie delby i I, I did it again just for you Troy. um (laughs) but yeah so Whatever, I think uh, I think I would probably never watch this again. I th- I've seen it like three or four times. I think I'm good after Oof. this. You've seen it two more times than I've seen it, and I like yeah. it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, like again, like you said, like I was a dumb kid going to Blockbuster every weekend, and it's like, okay, we'll rent this, and then I got gotcha, you know, a different yeah. set of friends is like, all right, we're gonna watch this one, and I'm like, well, okay. Sure. You, why not? You know, I those are all I think very valid criticisms in the movie. But like, uh, and wolf nipples. So, we got. Oh wolf yeah. <laughs> None of that bothered me like as much as if I had a big criticism. It's just that it it, 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 it kind of speaks to what you're saying about the way it is. It's a very Parisian movie, and if I look at it through that lens, and I'm like, okay, this is a very bright environment. It's about the beauty of the architecture and the themes of. Uh, of um, kind of Parisian superiority is kind of a thing culture, like in the, when it comes to culture and looking at the werewolves as representing like how in Paris, they're like, we are the, we are the capital of the world's culture. We are the most refined minds in the world, you know, like that's kind of where the werewolf uh, nationalism element kind of works for me in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But like the, but it's not, yeah. Like American werewolf in London is like a legit spooky horror movie with real scary moments in it. It's funny too. And it has absurd moments in it. Like the, the Nazi dream sequence and all that, that, you know, could have been dumb and didn't necessarily have to be in there, but they, it still works because it's so has an identity. Paris does not have an identity like that. Yeah. They didn't, it didn't come together where people were like, when I think of movies set in Paris, an American werewolf comes to mind. But when I think of movies <laughs> set in London, an American werewolf does come to mind, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. That, I think, I think again, the, London is so simple of a plot and, and Paris, they kind of get it into this thing where, Oh, here's my daddy. He's a wolf, but he doesn't have any legs. And here's this serum and here's this and the cycles of the moon and all this stuff. And they don't ever explain it well enough to, to get a really good understanding. So if you're not, the explanations they had were terrible. Yeah. So like, if you're not going to read them, yeah, if you're not gonna like explain that stuff well, then just keep it simple, stupid. Like is, yeah. is kind of my feeling. So. But it's a sequel. I I, I think it, it's bound by Hollywood sequel rules to take the concept and do more with it. I, yeah, that's just yeah, how it, it works. Yeah, I think 
there's a reason we didn't get a third one. Although considering the gap between the first and second, you never know. You could. Um, but yeah, the the sequel thing, like the ideas of connecting it to the first movie, the ones that were in the early versions of the script are so bad. Like that that's David, the legless werewolf in the basement is David. Mm-hmm. And that the mom is the nurse from the first movie. And those ideas that they had abandoned and then didn't replace, like you were saying, Brad, the exposition was never replaced with anything else. It was left to the audience's imagination. I prefer it being left to my imagination. Had they explained it to me that that was supposed to be David Kessler's legless werewolf body in that bed trying to find a cure for werewolfism, that would have been made it like making too many connections to the first movie would have made me dislike this movie more than, than I do. If that makes any sense. No, that's fair. Because I like the idea of being able to think of them as two separate things, and I can still kind of be like, this was okay. It felt like an above-average sci-fi movie to me. I mean, the channel sci-fi. Like It was like when they really take it seriously and make a made-for-cable horror or science fiction film, this is about the level of quality I feel like they end up with when they do a great job. That's fair. That's fair. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I do like the movie. It sounds like I'm bashing it, but I, I like it. Like, But I'm very much like, if I had to get rated on a scale of one to 10, it'd be like a six and a half for me, maybe. Yeah. I I want to, I do want to get the good stuff like front and center. Um, and for me, Julie Delby, just enough said. I, I even think with mediocre material, she elevates it. I, I think she just... The I, think can- the, I think the Julie's really elevate this movie oh i i agree yeah. julie bowen julie julie delpy I, I i think the camera loves him i think julie delpy does bring the pathos out um from a character perspective and bowen brings the comedy uh her her bits are really good um as like the clueless american who's who's trying to hook up with the hero you know and then dies and uh, she wants him dead so that she can pass on so th- those sequences i find actually really funny um, especially when Me she's too. trying to whistle and <laughs> blood's coming out of her cheek. <laughs> or the burp at dinner is pretty, pretty great. Too. Yeah, I, I, I think she nails it. And and you made a comment earlier about you see her comedic chops early on as an actress. They're they're front and center. Uh, and again, I find um, in a werewolf film, again going back to that, you need that tragic element to it. Julie Delby brings it. She's the Larry Talbot character. She's basically saying, "I killed my mom. I ate my dad's legs." And uh, I, I'm trying to kill myself because I just can't handle this because I'm, I'm tired of, you know, pureeing hearts that I steal from the hospital uh, to keep going. So I think she sells that aspect of the character. Now, to me, when she's not on screen, there's a problem because her and Bowen light the screen up with their performances. We've crapped all over the effects, but I do want to point out that the undead or ghoul effects on everybody else do look good. They're all practical, too. They're all practical. They did get that stuff right. And again, it is the bright spot of the special effects. There are elements of the were like the werewolf in the bed, I think, is practical. It looks pretty good Mm -hmm. with it when it doesn't have the legs. And then there's an early transformation sequence when you see um, Julie's character, Seraphine, uh, there's a shot where she's, I think in the sewer or something and you see her eyes and the veins coming out of her face. It is CG, but it looks really good. But what happens after that doesn't look so great. Um, but How I do you feel for 97, the effect, if you, in the context of the time period, the effects are not bad. They just well, age. Well, 
you you brought up Spawn and you brought up what was the other movie they did? Um, uh, it was oh, Ghost, Ghost of, of Mars. Mars. All along the same pars that like Spawn is the worst. These effects are better, way better than Spawn. Yeah, but a thousand percent. Yeah, so they're still not great. Late late nineties, they're they're passable for what they are. I just wish so the concept was to do a lot of close up shots with practical effects and the CGI for the transformations. I wish they had stuck to that a little bit better and given us more close up opportunities with the practical and may, you know, again, the undead effects look great on everybody. The werewolf stuff. It does. Do you look ever feel too, Troy, like, I don't know if you I feel like you're like me where you're like uh, very empathetic towards filmmakers. When you watch movies, you, I always approach a movie like I want to love it. And and there was a time where I was like, this is getting exhausting trying to love every movie. Right? And then I got, <laughs> I, but then I got to the point where I'm like, I can watch an American world from Paris's digital effects. And I'm like, they took one for the team. Really? When you think about it, like they were like, we're going to do what's possible with what we've got the best we can. So that 10 years from now, somebody with half of our imagination can make something that looks 20 times better. You know, like, like they, they could have, the ideas are all there. They're good. Not all bad ideas for the visually. I mean, for the effects, it like, it's just like, I do think they were somewhat, you know, uh, what's, what is it? Clotheslined by the budget, maybe hamstrung in a way. Yeah. I, Thank I, you. I, that's the phrase. I think that's fair. I, I don't think the, uh, script helped them out too much either or the no. cinematography uh, cinematography. I, I, it, it I agree with Brad watching it off. Like this is a film. I, I have the 4k and I'm excited about all the special features, but I'd wish I watched it on VHS. I actually think that would have helped some oh, on a out. CRT as well. Like give me the grime. With that <laughs> you CRT. do need the grime and hide those flaws, man. Yeah. You do Put um, some Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> and, and I'm with you. Fra- so here's my take on films is especially sequels, et cetera. You got to grade it for what it is, uh, not yeah. what you want it to be. And, and I, and I will be the first to say, I struggle with that a lot. Cause I'll come to a film and I'm like, I want it to be this. And it's not that. And I get frustrated. And usually when I go back on the revisit and I'm like, okay, what were they trying to do? Where were they going with it? And then you ask the question, were they successful? I think with this film, I, I would go back to it and say, okay, I, I, I did what Brad did. And I watched the first one. Then I watched this one and I go, okay, just put the first one out of the way. What are they going for here? The movie is going for scares and jokes that, that they're, they're really just trying to develop a horror comedy in the late nineties. And it's like, okay, well, uh, if that's what the movie's going for, does it work? I would say not, not all the time. As a matter of fact, it's, it's probably like 60, 40 in, in my bucket. I'm, I'm probably in the middle where you and Brad land. I think the problem is that there really aren't any scares. And the couple of jump scares that they do have are music stingers and, and they're poorly, placed jump scares or executed ones. Um, and I don't think it helps that the scares that they're trying to create are dependent on the wonky werewolf effects. So uh, in the jokes, it, if it's not Bowen, <laughs> they're not funny. Uh, in fact, yeah. in fact, most of the humor is kind of cringeworthy because you get Americans mispronouncing French words uh, a condom joke that goes on way too long. It's like chewing gum. Oh, why don't you blow a bubble for me? And then he blows a bubble and then it lands in some guy's soup. You're like, really? 
Yeah, um, it was. It felt really out of place. And, yeah, and Coneheads was like way earlier than this. Like that was a Coneheads joke. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> then, then you get like a dog humping his leg, and you're like, okay, I get it. And then um, there's there's another callback joke to that, where apparently he humps a dog or something, and the dog has this weird look on his face, and its legs are spread out, and it's dead. That's one of the things I wanted to to ask about. Is werewolf? They got red rockets. Oh, oh I'm God. sure. I, I don't know. <laughs> I did not what, put the together. Class, According to how the howling, they would. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. You get uh, somebody. Let's get to the. Let's get to the real important stuff. What's that dick look like? Yeah. Werewolf dick. Yeah. You get another joke of well, I'm going to talk to my. Uh, some guy's going to be in the bathroom thinking I'm talking to my penis, but I'm actually talking to my my ghost friend. You know what though? That made me laugh. Oh, it did. It did because of what he's saying. He's, it's not even, you know, that's, I always call those a three's company joke oh, because okay. it was always Mr. Furley walking in on overhearing something out of context. And that's the joke. But the thing out of context always sounded sexual. And I felt like what they did here was like, he's talking about murder to his <laughs> penis. That's funny to me that the thing he's overhearing isn't like, like it isn't even like penis related dialogue or anything to do with anything other than he just seems totally batshit. And that moment I laughed really hard. And when they're fleeing the crypt party at the end and the guy's crucified and they're running out and it's in slow motion. Oh, and the, the dude does cross the, himself. Yeah. That shit had me cracking up, but I'm a little bit of a pothead. Take what I say with a grain of no, salt. No, no, no. But you know, you just you just described that bathroom scene, and I'm laughing when you describe it. But watching um, Tom Everett Scott do it, I, I think y- you have natural charisma and are funny when you describe it. Him doing it <laughs> isn't funny. <laughs> well, it's also like I think it, it, there's something in my sense of humor that they appeal to that might be very specific that yeah. most people don't enjoy. But like I was him just saying, uh, why, do you remember what the line is that he's telling his uh, his Didn't Johnson say something's going to bury bury in the yard or something. Something. I can't even yeah, remember yeah. what he said, but just the oh, you're dead. I know it. And so do the police. Yeah. <laughs> if I look at my penis while I'm pissing, I'm like, you're dead. I know it. So do the police. <laughs> like if I ever heard somebody say that, when that you would be say the story it, I told at parties the rest of my life. I know. You know? But, when, but your delivery is so much better than. His. Yeah. <laughs> But he made me laugh. Um, oh, he made me laugh. Can we talk about the uh, couple of things? If you see a nightclub littered with homeless people in an abandoned building, leave. I mean, it's not European. It's just you're going to die. Okay. <laughs> but you live in Baltimore. You see that shit all the time. That's true. That's true. And there's some good sandwich shops in those buildings. So, um, yeah. <laughs> the Get most some good barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. The most unrealistic scene is when Julie Delpy is on top of him and telling him he's a werewolf. And obviously she's not wearing some clothes uh, and he doesn't believe it. Look, if, if Julie Delpy is on top of you in that scenario, you believe believe anything, anything? you believe anything she says. And you're just like, yep, I'm a werewolf dude. And if she's like, I'm a werewolf, you're like, cool. I I'm that's fine with me. How do you like lean down in his ear? And she's like, we never landed on the moon. <laughs> I mean, like we never landed the, the on earth the earth is moon. flat. 
<laughs> the earth is Hello, flat. Darn. I agree with you, Julie. <laughs> Whatever she's going to tell you in that scenario, I'm a hundred percent going to believe. So let's yeah. just let's just call it what it is. You would not that's laugh and that's a weird sequence though, because it's very Inception like. Because he has a dream within a dream, and then like within another dream. I'm like, when is the kick going to happen to getting back to? I, that's I don't know. one of the few kind of spooky moments in the movie is the reveal of the mother in that scene. Yes. Which is another in great practical like, effect. I killed her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a great practical. It's it's uh it's pretty spooky. Like her but stuff. But yeah, it's a it's a needle and haystack in this movie. It is. Her stuff is fantastic because if you take a step back and look at what they did with her character, it is the Larry Talbot character, all the stuff that she did and the guilt and everything else. But I'm just telling you when when Julie Delpy's like just crawling on top of you and you're in bed look, the earth is you know, flat, I don't care. Cool. Had you been around it in back when they were making this? Somebody could have stepped in and made the movie more about that character and have the American kid be more of an ancillary, like a smaller part of the story. And it might have worked better. It could have. or I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think to call it an American werewolf in Paris, he still has to be. To a, use the title. <laughs> yeah. It, he still has to be front and center. Yeah. But, but take the stuff with uh, Claude and the werewolf nationalism or whatever that they're doing. I mean, I would almost say, does it have to be in there and could it be more about um, like their relationship? If you do that though, then it's kind of a clone of the first movie. You almost I'm, I'm need okay, but something give, like that. Give me the b- before sunrise version of a werewolf film. <laughs> Maybe that's the film you should make, Troy. I should. If Julie, that Delphi sounds would great. Do it, I would, I would 100%. Before the full moon. Huh? Before the full moon. Before the full, oh pretty, God, there it there is, we Brad. There we we should we should Got be writing some. screenplays, man. That's fantastic. This is, smart, this is a pretty smart idea, really. You could have <laughs> Ethan Hawke reprise his role, but he's werewolf. Oh, oh God, this we could redo Boyhood and call it Werewolfhood. Dude, this is perfect. <laughs> We're packing our bags. We're going to Hollywood. <laughs> We're doing a pitch meeting. Uh, did I have a question? Did anybody see the alternate ending of this film? No. I did not. Okay. So listen, uh, it's on Brad, you own it. It's on, uh-huh. it's on the four or it's on the Blu-ray version. So that in that set, there's the 4k and the Blu-ray. Uh-huh. So the Blu-ray okay. has all special features you can. So when we're done, Freddie go and on YouTube and look for American werewolf in Paris, alternate ending it's out there. So basically the ending starts to be, starts to being different when they put her in the ambulance. And so I, I don't understand how she's cured outside of a blood transfusion at the end, I guess is what they're implying. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how it ends here. What happens is she has one of her. So obviously when you're a werewolf, you're seeing, you know, the people that you killed. Right. So, obviously. In, so in the ambulance, her father comes back and is holding these notes and he's like, I got the cure. We're going to cure you. And she's like, Oh, thank you. I love you so much. And so the, her legless father. Yeah. Is in is the ambulance in a wheelchair. No, no, no. He's just legless and holding papers behind what's <laughs> his holding, somebody holding him up. Yeah. No, like someone's just, got him his armpits. He's a ghost. He, he can, he's so that happens. And then the several full moons later or whatever, he's coming into the hospital to visit her cause she's in the hospital bed and you're like, well, what's going on? And, um, 
all of a wolf sudden, baby, wolf baby, wolf, wolf baby, baby comes out. <laughs> all puppy dogs. And they're like, oh, <laughs> they just had a baby, blah, blah, blah. And then the baby opens its eyes and it's got the werewolf eyes and it's a werewolf uh, baby. Werewolf baby. Nice. Yeah. Which you just got to, you got to see it. It's interesting. <laughs> Uh, I can totally see why they didn't use that. Yeah, <laughs> I can see why that. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. But you got to watch it. You got to watch it. One hundred percent. I keep thinking about how to bungee jump off the Eiffel Tower ever since Brad said that thing about the tapering. Yeah. Does it, it work? It, it, it does, wouldn't work. So is the New York uh, the what the Statue of Liberty? Yes, that one. <laughs> yeah. That seemed more plausible well, because there's not she's, a bunch of metal going this way. Okay. She's holding a torch and they went out from the torch, which if you've ever been into the Statue of Liberty, it's not that spacious. So, okay. It's actually relatively small up there. So Have, haven't gone up there yet, mm. but I, I do, I do feel like I know a lot about it just from the Remo Williams movie when they're crawling all over it. Oh, that's a movie. That's a film. <laughs> yeah. It's a good movie. <laughs> isn't it? Freddie Ghostbusters two did it better. Oh, shut up. Did not. Uh, what other thoughts do you have on this one? Uh, Are you asking anyone in particular? Anybody. I was going to say my notes of this one are, are all weird. There are a lot of question marks. Uh, I My notes say, oh, shaking off the water from the cemetery <laughs> fountain. So when he does it, whenever a werewolf or a cartoon dog does something a regular dog does, I'm one over. It's that oh, really? easy. Okay. Yeah. Like when Brian, the dog on Family Guy, wags his tail because he's uh. happy. I'm like, that's the best thing in the world. Okay. Freddy's an I, easy I'm mark. a dog lover. I love You're dogs. An easy mark. I am easy. an easy mark. I am real easy. I, uh, it, this seems like a minor criticism now after everything we said, but I wrote down the note. Morg scene is too silly. Morg scene. Oh, when he, um, okay. he hides, yeah. in, he hides yeah. in the morgue. Yeah. And the one guy's like, I'm trying to rest in peace in here. Like it was a little too haunted mansion. For me. So I, I didn't get that. So in the, in the first one, the way the, the universe of the rules work in this is you see the ghoul or the ghost of the person that you killed. But this guy sees everybody that's undead at random parts. Is that right? Because he sees Seems the mother. He it's sees... kind of like it's ill-defined, Troy. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, are you calling into question the thought process that went into the mythology yeah, here? It's kind of like it. the script is no good in this movie. Uh, you feel like a kid in church like confronting their youth pastor for the first time about contradictions in the Bible? Yeah, you're like... So wait a minute. How do they feed all those animals? <laughs> Touche, Brad. Touche. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, I I think it's time to just go ahead and have the verdict out. So I'm going to start with you, Freddie. One of the questions we always ask is, the movie that we talked about, um, is it a bomb? Does it deserve a second chance? So I'm going to kick it over to you. American Werewolf in Paris, is, is it a bomb? Uh, I'd say, oof. I mean, yes, it's a bomb. Unless you have a personal attachment to the cast, like where you like these people, the actors that we were talking about. Yeah. I would say it's a pass. It's a bomb. I mean, okay. It's a big duty bomb. All right. Uh, Brad, where, where do you land on this one? It's a bomb. It's a bomb. It's a bomb. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to say this with an asterisk on it that no, it, no, listen, it is a bomb. <laughs> However, Julie Delpy's performance is not a bomb. She, she, she can't suck at all. Cause she's amazing. <laughs> So this movie's a bomb. She's not. So let's, that's my, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. I'll let it slide. Okay. Uh, we have a little bit of listener feedback. I, I thought <laughs> this would be interesting to share. So I'm going to start with Zoe. Uh, he is one of the hosts on the backlook cinema podcast. Go listen to that. 
So he wrote in and said, thanks for considering Masters of the Universe. I definitely have some thoughts on it. I can't wait to hear yours and Brad's take. I think we're doing that one first quarter of next year, second quarter. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Okay, so it's coming. Well, look at you, businessman, first quarter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to do it in on. Q1, Troy. Q1. Yeah, is that a fiscal year, <laughs> this fiscal year, Troy? Yeah. No, it's uh 2023 fiscal year. Yeah, you yeah. really bring passion to the dis- discussion of art. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so he goes on to to make a comment about something that came up in our uh, Dominion, the Exodus prequel episode. He says, you asked if Protestants were offended by the praying to saints that Catholics like to do. I grew up Baptist, but it never bothered me none. However, considering that the differences between the Catholics and the Protestants was one of the issues of contention that sparked the troubles over in the UK, and that for a long time in the US, there was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment this leads me to conclude that Protestants found that praying to anyone other than the Holy Trinity was very offensive. Bear in mind that this is all speculation on my part. There okay. you go, Brad. Mm. I think you answer, I think you asked that question. There's your I did. I did because I I've never heard that before, but I could see it being offensive. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. This, this yeah, is, yeah, it's idolatry, I think, in some circles, some Christian circles see that as a yeah, as it, praying to a saint as idolatry. Yeah, I, I mean, growing up Catholic and even talking to to friends of other denominations, they never understood like um, the Hail Mary yeah. and 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 stuff like that. And you're like, dude, they knew the shotgun formation though. <laughs> yeah, right? they did knew that. Yeah, <laughs> deep sounds. Yep. Football. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say football joke. Yeah. Yeah. Right the power eye. Yeah. yeah. Hail Mary. <laughs> Full of grace. I love it. Bengals won today. They beat the yeah, Saints. They did. They beat the I Saints. I didn't get to watch it. Oh, they beat the, the Saints. How Saints. ironic is that? Yeah. I just love that you snuck in a little dad joke there, Freddie. <laughs> I, I can't help myself. It. No, I love it. I'm, I'm biologically incapable of having children. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This one, I love this one. Um, I had I had to bring this one to the forefront. So it's from our good friend, Alex. He says, hey, guys, to start out your Dominion episode, you all shared stories from the first time you watched The Exorcist. So I wanted to share mine, particularly because Troy showed it to me when I was a kid. This is true. Alex, Did you say what age? Um, he, God, he probably, I can't think of the age. I don't think he says it in here. He had to have been 12 maybe is what okay. I'm thinking. So he, he lived three houses down. Him and his sister used to babysit my kids. So uh, <laughs> this is his story. When Troy and I were neighbors in Indiana, I remember my sister and I coming over to watch The Exorcist. I knew that Troy thought it was one of the scariest movies, so I wanted to try to not get scared and make fun of Troy afterwards for being a baby, which they did this often. Um, However, that didn't last long, as I watched most of the movie through the reflection of the movie posters that lined the walls that would give me a disjointed sliver of what was happening on screen because I didn't want them to make fun of me for covering my eyes. Being traumatized and running home in the dark as fast as humanly possible, I returned to my bedroom only to realize that it had the exact setup of Reagan's bedroom in the film, <laughs> fit with a window on the second floor that I was worried demons would throw me out of to break my neck. I immediately made my parents help me rearrange the furniture in my room so I could sleep at night. Funnily enough, I watched The Exorcist when I moved to Colorado in 2019. I was able to appreciate it much more as a film. However, I once again had to rearrange my bedroom because the furniture was in the same basic position again. It's so impressive to me that a horror movie can have something as basic as orientation of furniture to still keep me up at night. Glad to hear it was just as horrifying when you guys watched it the first time too. 
It's such a great film, and I'm hoping to check out more Freakin' films soon. Outside of The Exorcist, what is your favorite Freakin' film? Hope you guys are having a spooky October so far. I love this story. because um, I, I, I relate big time. You do? Well, not The Exorcist in particular, but I had my parents rearrange the furniture in my room after I saw Salem's Lot, the, the TV miniseries. Oh, uh, with the guy on your... Window. Yeah, Glick, Danny Glick at the at the window scratching saying let me in. Yeah. That night my I was like I can't see the I cannot bear to have my bed this close to this window. That's awesome. Trying to workshop do a it. feng shui Pazuzu joke in my mind. I just can't <laughs> I'll, I'll get it. Don't worry. It's, a, it's enough to even just say the concept of that joke and it's pretty funny. Okay. That is funny. Well, do, the, you, uh, do you guys have a favorite freaking film? Oh god. I mm-hmm. mean is it a cop out if I say the French Connection? No, it's, no, it's okay, a great that's, movie. That's one of my top three. I think of his. I think Jade's underrated. You know, I, I agree with you. I, that's one I think we're going to talk about at some point because I did revisit it a few years ago, and I'm like, I this this was actually kind of interesting. It had some interesting stuff going on. I had a crush on Linda Fiorentino when that came out. Oh, so. yeah, I think we all did. Yeah. I'm going to say Sorcerer is probably the one I love to revisit the most. I think it's Roy Schreider's fantastic in it. That, Never seen that one. Oh, you, you I'm have, gonna have to, to pick that up. It it's freaking freaking an, an amazing director. That movie, as much as the exorcist scares the just bejesus out of me, Sorcerer puts me on the edge of my seat for that entire runtime. And it's it's beautifully photographed, but it's one of the most tense films. Uh, Is it like a war movie? It's a remake of Wages of Fear. Yeah, and it's and it's probably one of the greatest remakes ever made in in really? like cinema history too. Mm-hmm. Wages of Fear is amazing, um, but I I would be the first to tell you I would watch probably Sorcerer over Wages of Fear. So, shout out oh. to Live and Die in L.A. as well. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh God, I forgot too. about that one. I forgot that was him. Yeah, mm-hmm. I should I should tell another Alex story real quick, uh, and you'll love this, Freddie, because it has to do with the strangers. So this is the kind of stuff we did to our families back and forth. So Alex, about the same time he was getting into scary movies, uh, had watched The Strangers, and so his mom and his sister ran down the street real quick and said, was knocking on a door and go, Alex just finished The Strangers, and uh, he's like he's scared to death now, and so my kids and my wife and I were like, we got this. We ran around the house and grabbed um, the pillowcases and started cutting eyes into it. I like that you're not like, I'll go comfort him. Oh no. <laughs> we went through the house and just grabbed the pillowcases off our bed, cut eye holes in them. Angel and Cameron did the same thing. Now I'm, I'm imagining, I'm imagining that uh, scene in Django Unchained where they're having the talk on whether or not they're going to wear the bags over their head. Oh. Yeah. We, we ran over there and we just stood outside of like the windows and by the kids. So like two of us, were in the front two of us were in the back and his mom and everything were just they knew what was going on so they're just sitting in the house with alex and it took about 15 20 minutes before he finally went to a window where i think cameron was standing so you imagine cameron being pretty small and uh having a hoodie over or just a pillowcase over his head alex freaked out so bad he about ran out of the house it was hilarious but yeah that's, that's pretty great did. i got one more this comes from Michael, um, spooky greetings from beyond the grave. Uh, the subject line, I love it, is um, the power of bombs compels you. That's, that's awesome, Michael. Uh, over the I years- say that whenever I Dutch oven Amy. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Oh my 100% God. of the time. <laughs> that is fantastic. Okay, he writes, over the years, I've seen all of the various different versions of the Exorcist films. The theatrical cut of the Exorcist is great as it is, but the work print for Exorcist 2 is superior to the theatrical release. With regards to Exorcist 2, it doesn't matter which version you watch. It's still bonkers, but I still love it. Dominion is perhaps my favorite of the series after the first film. It's a character-driven examination of good and evil in which there can be no outright winner. It's a fascinating film in a series which has had its highs and lows, but not as low as the beginning. Keep up the good work. I have a question for you, Freddie. Where, where do you stand on Exorcist 2, The Heretic? Well, The Heretic, I like for the oddity of it. Like, I like weird movies. I like a movie. If a movie has an identity, like, I, 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 the only way I ever have learned to explain this to people is I'm like, I, I, I uh, respect that movie's I, the identity of that movie, that it, mm-hmm. it is very much its creation. Whoever made it, it was a work of art for that person. And that they put a button on it and they're like, I'm doing it my way. I don't care if it's weird. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes me feel good to watch something like that. And, uh, and I can't explain why, but, uh, and, and heretic is under that category. I watched dominion in the theater. I think it was called dominion then. Right. Cause they released it twice. Well, they, 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 they filmed dominion and the studio is like, it's not too scary. Shelve it. Then Rennie yeah. Hartland's the beginning came out theatrically and it bombed. I saw that. And then they said, well, Dominion, they were going to release it as a special feature on uh, the beginning. Instead, gave it a limited theatrical release and then released it as a standalone film. That's super confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was confusing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I saw, I remember not liking whatever version of it I saw in the theater. That's probably the, the beginning. Yeah. It was very, just very, like, didn't gory. feel like. Was it gory and all i remember is it being very dull like i i I, I couldn't yeah yeah i couldn't get into like i never felt like they hooked me at all like with anything and then but that's symptomatic of exorcism movies for me now for the most part i'm with you i i we talked about this exorcism films on paper just look dopey and Mm -hmm. uh, and this is coming from former you know roman catholic uh but I, I would say it's probably one of the hardest subgenres to do because to get the scares and thrills out of it, you really got to create an atmosphere. I mean, it you're not going to do anything that we haven't seen in The Exorcist. So if you're creating any kind of exorcism, exorcism film, you got to have an inter- interesting story in a really, yeah. really creepy atmosphere in order for it that to said that TV series uh, they made the second season they did of that was outstanding. Yeah, I saw the first season. And I haven't watched keep, the second one keep- yet. People keep re- recommending that series to us. So, yeah, the second, second, I think it's that there was just two seasons. There were two seasons. I, I watched the first one, which was really interesting, and um, I just yeah, the first season's the good. One. It's just the second season they really start hitting on some actual scares, oh, and, nice. which is always just for me is always a surprise at this point because I've seen so many horror movies when you can still do something, especially in TV, where if, with a franchise I'm burnt out on. And then you scare me. I'm like, what? I was like, how did you do that? It's That's like a magic. good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, well, what's going on at Night Living Podcast? I've, I just finished, I think, um, one of the episodes where, and I'm loving this. Uh, you guys did a few episodes where you were doing Halloween specials off of television shows. Yeah. Uh, and you did some like Perfect Strangers, uh, Small <laughs> World, Wings. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. tell everybody... What's going on over on your channel? Yeah, the uh, every year in October we do TV Halloween specials, and we did like you were saying, Small Wonder, one of the worst TV shows of all time. 
Yeah, you've you've your description. I was laughing pretty hard listening to that, and now I'm like, I'm going to go watch a few episodes just to see how bad it is. Well, to be fair, this was a Halloween special, so I haven't gone back and looked at what that show is outside of the context. My hair is insane right now of a Halloween special, <laughs> but like, uh, because if I judge Perfect Strangers on the Halloween special we watched this year, I wouldn't think it was a good show either. But that is a pretty good sitcom. Yeah, uh, wonders the robot girl one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, it, the, the part that's really kind of perturbing when you watch it as an adult is she's basically like child slave labor. Mm. <laughs> and when you watch it, that's all you. I mean, most everyone I watched it with, we all came away from it feeling like that was weird. That made me feel wrong. I, I think <laughs> I had Andy's reaction after you guys talked about it. Where I think Andy had said he wanted to go back and watch a few episodes, see how bad it was, and I'm like, I'm I'm in. I'll, Let I'll me know how it goes. Okay, I'm curious. Well, I don't know that I want to do that, but. And you are putting out a lot of amazing music too. So can oh, thanks, you Troy. can you talk about like what's going on with that part of your career and where people can sort of discover um, your output? Thank you for that because I yeah. I do need all the attention I can get on my music <laughs> because uh, it's like the main thing I do now. I know I follow uh, you on Spotify, you, man. I love it. I appreciate it. Uh, if you go to uh, just search Freddie Morris, M O R R I S, um, I'm on all the big streaming services. Uh, I've done. It's a. It's kind of strange because like I I was in music like 20 plus years ago and quit and started you know a regular person job and and then the dream died and then I had a nervous <laughs> breakdown because I wasn't cut out for 25 years in corporate America, you know. And I quit my job and I started um, getting back in touch with like, you know, that person and playing piano and guitar and all that. And I've taken jobs of contracting, doing music for like video game type stuff, which I contributed a very small part to a, a friend who's got a video game project coming out. But I've done podcast themes and um, stuff for the Cincinnati uh, Academy for the Blind and Visually Impaired because they do radio dramas. So I've done scoring for that, but I'm also getting into like uh, getting back to like singer songwriter stuff. And uh, I'm actually another thing, a job I did for they're doing a, an anniversary motion comic of the crow. Uh -huh. And they had me uh, record two covers of burn the cure song from the original crow soundtrack. Oh, wow. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And those should be coming out soon. Uh, they're, they've been submitted to uh, all the streaming services. Uh, there's an acoustic version and then a full band version of that, which is fun. Like I'm doing anything like really honestly, like I've written a bunch of original music that I have not released, but uh, I, over the course of this year, I'm going to start releasing singles and covers just kind of give people an idea of what I'm doing. Well, on, I'm a, on, a on, a, on a personal level, when I saw you at Horror Hound, that was probably like the happiest and the best you've looked since I've probably met you. I agree a hundred percent, probably 10 to 15 years ago. So yeah. Thank you. Good Brad. job for you, man. It's, it's very uh, inspiring as someone who works in corporate America to say, man, could I do that? And I don't know if I could, but I applaud you for, for taking the leap, man. And we'll support well, you. I could, you couldn't know. do it. Couldn't do it without Amy, my wife. Yep. Uh, she let's be real. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm eating because of her, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm eating because of our patrons, uh, for night of living podcasts. Like that helps supplement because we make a little money over there, but I'm happier. And Brad, like when you think about this, like you can do it in a smart way. Yeah. I saved, I, I just was very frugal. You know, I saved, I didn't do, uh, I mean, we'd go to Disney world. That was a big deal for us. Uh, but we don't do that anymore. So it's like, 
that was where most of my money, my yeah. discretionary money was going. So now it's just a matter of doing something I love to, um, cause I might, I, you know, like you not to get too deep in the weeds on this, but like I've gone through immense personal changes in the past five to 10 years, uh, with losing family and stuff. And my, my, you know, and that's why I'm happy. I'm really happy to connect with you guys because honestly, just straight up, like I miss having human contact you have leaving corporate America, you, 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 you take that for granted, like yeah. being around people all the yeah. time uh, who are on the same mission that you're on. And uh, to, to be in charge of the mission and not have a crew is kind of like to put it in nerd terms, like, you know, Star Trek terms, it's kind of scary, but it's also like the most fun thing ever to be writing things like to get up in the morning and create something that didn't exist the night before yeah. is awesome. You're on your path, man. I, I'm so happy you're doing what you're doing because you, you just, like Brad said, when we saw you a few weeks ago, you were glowing and I, Thanks, I haven't seen man. that for a while. Um, it's like when, when someone gets pregnant, it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're pregnant with a lot of awesome ideas. That's exactly it. Uh, yeah, no, I crave weird stuff, you know, <laughs> but you, I mean, everybody over at nightly podcast, you, Amy, Andy, um, I, I just, I can't thank you enough for all of the hours that you put into that show, uh, because I can't even tell you how many countless drives and, and flights and just, you know, get in the lawn mode and having you guys in my ear just feels like, um, you're right there because your personality uh, on that show is really what you guys are like in real life. And it's just one of the best personalities, um, out there. Uh, and we've, I mean, heck we've had camping trips together. We've done hiking. I mean, I, I, my family adores you. Um, they're all jealous that they couldn't be on the podcast to talk to you. I mean, that's, that's how much love Aww. there is. Well, so. the feelings mutual, like our hearts. Well, uh, every time we see you, like you guys are so wonderful the sour family brad uh yeah like this your whole circle is it's the same feeling yeah. so like and i think that you know that's the beauty of doing this stuff is like i never would have met you either of you guys had yeah. i if it hadn't been for this no, and like i value yeah, that brought, more than yeah you brought so many amazing people together and i i cannot encourage people enough to go out and and just check Night of the Living podcast. I mean, you guys used to do a, a great thing at Horror Hound where you were handing out like, um, I think, I, I can't remember, it was like a greatest hits episode. Oh, first timer primer. The first timer primer, that's what <laughs> yeah. it was. And yeah, I, I had, I've listened to, I think every episode of you guys, but I remember grabbing the first timer primer and just handing it out to people randomly. Um, when I got back in Indiana, I'm like, if you if you want to get an introduction to an amazing podcast, just listen to this. This, this is like crack. You'll get addicted and it'll be in your weekly download. That is so nice, man. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that is on our site. I believe that you can still stream the first timer primer on there. And it's fun because I think there's a couple of them because like, yeah. we refreshed it because after so many years, you're like, things are different. You, you're not representative, but it's so much fun to go back because like one of them is narrated by the bass player from my old band and he's an <laughs> actor. So like he did a really good job narrating it and made a story out of these clips and stuff. It was really fun. Yeah, that's. A, I would encourage everybody to go find that. It's a great way to get an introduction if you if you aren't listening to them. Um, Thank you, Brad. If anybody wants to send us feedback or recommend bombs, how do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's notabombpod at gmail.com. You can also head over to our website, notabombpodcast.com. Uh, hit the contact us button, and of course, we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those. Um, yeah, and be sure to check out um, while you're there. Friends of the podcast, we've got Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Get Plus, uh, the VHS Files. 
some show called Night of the Living Podcast, um, <laughs> the Backlook Cinema Podcast, uh, the Mixtape Podcast, and the Iron Sequel. Yes. Check all those fine folks out, please. So, uh, what are we doing next week? I think I picked it right. Do you, what uh, is it? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. Is that what we're doing? Number three. Yes, Leatherface. Oh, Leatherface. Yeah. Surprisingly, I think it's one of the only ones that just didn't make its money back. Right. I mean, we again when we were going through for for like horror movie sequels that bombed the list was short and we were all kind of surprised that Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre three just uh, kind of bombed. So we thought that would be an interesting pick. Yeah. You would think next generation that that one would have been the bomb of the group. Yeah. Nope. It's, it's number three. So well, uh, three, also, three is pretty, ex- yeah. Do yourself a favor. Our, our friend Sammy pointed this out to us. Type in Leatherface Texas Chainsaw three trailer Excalibur. There is an Excalibur-esque um, Sword in the Stone um, trailer for this movie, and it is probably the greatest thing I've ever seen. Awesome. Brad, I, I, as a kid, seeing that trailer, I was like, like <laughs> the nerdiest, most excited reaction, like it because the movie Excalibur, when you cross over, when it, you got a kid who really loves that fantasy movie and Texas Chainsaw, and they're like. It's the fucking lady of the lake with the chainsaw. <laughs> I'm like sold. How to bomb? Yeah, buy my ticket, uh, <laughs> Freddie. I you've got so much going on, even outside of Night of the Living podcast. We, get, I mean, we're going to be begging to have you back on the show. Um, probably not horror related too, because I know you love action films. We're gonna. Have to I find, do. I love all movies. I know we're gonna have to find a good action film for you to talk about too. But um, I hope you do find time in your busy schedule to to make some room for us because we want to have you back like really bad. Oh, as I said, I'm crushingly lonely. <laughs> We're going to take totally advantage of that. I'm on board for about anything, man. I love human contact. Awesome. Keeps We're, you from getting too weird. Love it. Uh, anything else, Brad? No, I think we're good. Okay. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, afternoon, or evening. Thank you for downloading this week's episode. Join us next week when we're going to close out Spooky Season with one of the films from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. We'll catch you later. Don't lose your head. Don't lose your head.